Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Why are we attracted to some people, but not others? As it turns out, attraction is a very complex process that is influenced by a combination of biological, psychological, and social or environmental factors. For example, on the biological side, your level of physiological arousal when you meet someone new for the first time can influence the likelihood that you're going to find that person to be attractive. So specifically, if you've just done something very active and exciting and your heart is pounding, this makes it all the more likely that an attraction will develop. Likewise, on the psychological side, your mood state when you meet someone new can have a big impact on whether attraction develops or not. So for instance, if you already happen to be in a great mood or you meet someone who says something that just makes you feel really great, that can make attraction more likely. And then there are the social, cultural, and environmental factors as well. So for instance, the setting in which you're hanging out is going to influence your perceptions of attractiveness. So if you're at a crowded gym or swimming pool where everyone is scantily clad, the threshold for attractiveness is going to creep a bit higher. By contrast, if you're out at the bar late at night when most people have already gone home, the threshold is going to go down because you have a much more limited comparison level. So like I said, attraction is this very complex thing. And the goal of today's show is to help you better understand the laws of attraction. We're going to talk about factors that both increase and decrease the odds of attraction, as well as consider some common questions about sexual and romantic attraction, such as what kinds of pickup lines tend to work best, whether it's a good or bad idea to play hard to get, and what to do if you keep finding yourself attracted to the wrong kinds of partners. I am joined by Ashley Weller, a human sexuality and health psychology professor at Chapman University in Southern California. Ashley also works in mental health clinical research and has more than 15 years of experience in sex education. She also has a podcast called What's Your Position, which tackles issues surrounding sexuality, relationships, life, and love from a comedic yet educational point of view. This is going to be a really fun and informative conversation. So stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. The Kinsey Institute at Indiana University has been investigating issues of sex, gender, and relationships for 75 years. To commemorate the Institute's 75th anniversary, they will be hosting events all throughout the year, including art exhibitions, research lectures, a book club, dance performances, and much more. Visit their website at kinseyinstitute.org or follow them on social media for the latest details. You can follow them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Kinsey Institute. All right, Ashley, let's talk about attraction. This is one of my favorite topics. I have a whole chapter on it in my textbook, The Psychology of Human Sexuality, and it's called The Laws of Attraction. Now, that title is a little bit of a misnomer because attraction is so complex. So you can't really boil it down to like this simple set of rules that says when this and this and this happen, attraction will inevitably ensue. Rather, what we can say based on the research is that here's this established set of things that seem to facilitate attraction, but attraction also has some unpredictable elements to it. I mean, if attraction were really so easy to predict, all of the big dating companies would be out of business because everyone would already be partnered up. 
So that said, let's talk about some of the key factors that are involved in attraction. And my first question for you is whether attraction is this sort of instantaneous process where you just know it from first sight, or is attraction something that grows and builds over time, or is it a bit of both? So how does attraction usually unfold? That's a trick question. It um, is. <laughs> <laughs> that's not nice. Um, it's both. There, It can be both. It can be neither. It can be one and then it can turn into the other. I'm a huge believer that lust can turn into love and love can turn into lust. And I'm also a big believer that there is such thing as lust at first sight. And there's also such thing as love at first sight. I've known people who have been friends with people for decades and didn't realize the passion that they had with that person until they were in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And now they are married and passionately in love. And I know people who met when they were 15 years old and have never been with anybody else. I think that attraction is so very, very, very subjective that it's extremely difficult to research. So I'm not real sure how you did that. So my first question for you is how did you do that? <laughs> Attraction is very tricky to research. The reason why I started with this question is because attraction is not this linear process that is the same for every person in every situation. And I think it's a key point to make in this world where increasingly we're dating online and attraction has become so much about what happens at first sight. And you're cutting off all of these potential opportunities for potential romantic or sexual connections because it's like, uh, I didn't feel that immediate connection, that immediate spark to this other person. The organic part, the cellular part, not phone cellular, but like body <laughs> cellular, right? The molecular attraction that you get, the electricity that you feel when you stand next to somebody or you you share a joke with somebody in person. It's We've gotten so used to swiping and saying, you know, I, I either think they're attractive or I don't. And so it seems very surface and very much this, we, we need to think they're hot immediately. And if we don't, we're not even going to give them the time of day to get to know them where you could not be attracted to somebody physically right away, but their personality over time really blossoms and you become attracted to their soul and to their spirit. It doesn't have to be this lust, animalistic, you're hot, I want to bone you kind of attraction. It starts as this slow burn, this slow passion over time. I think dating apps have kind of robbed a lot of people of that organic, an entire generation is now only exclusively dating online. I I started dating my husband 17 years ago. And so, and we met at, at work, we met at a restaurant and we had attraction immediately. I've never dated online. So my friends who do, I question it and I, I want to play with it. Sometimes I'm like, can I swipe? <laughs> can I do the swipes? I want to find the ones that I like. And they're like, no, you're going to ruin my algorithm. You don't <laughs> like who I like. What are you doing? Get out of here. Uh, but it, it is this very strange sort of robbing of that organic attraction that we have. And we're making these assumptions based on a photo that they posted, which I, I personally don't get. 
Yeah. And I'm thinking about, you know, all the times in my life that I've developed attractions to people. Yeah. You know, sometimes you'll see someone and you'll think they're hot, but I've never experienced chemistry with someone until there was actually an interaction with that person. And it has to be the combination of, yeah, I find you physically attractive, but, oh, you're interested in me. And then, you know, then it becomes this thing where it's, it's validating and it's reciprocal and, Mm -hmm. you know, wanting to feel wanted, like is something that is so important for all of us. And so that's, I think what really creates that magnetism is when it goes beyond just like, yeah, you're attractive to, oh, this person wants me. And suddenly like (laughs) that creates that whole other level of feeling. I think that reciprocity and similarity are two of the most underrated pieces of attraction these days. Uh, It's like proximity. Yes. Are they close by? Like, do they live in the same city? Do they live in the same county? But also how much you have in common, the type of um, love language that they have, the type of attraction style that they have. Do they know how to make you feel special, how to make you feel wanted. And and these things move beyond that initial lightning strike. Do you know what I mean? These mm-hmm. things move are 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 the things that create the long-term attraction, more so than just a hey, you're hot, let's hook up, but a hey, not only do I find you physically attractive, but mentally we have the same values and you're an intellectual on the same level as I am. And you tell me what I want to hear or you show me the type of love that I want, whether it be physical touch or, you know, text messages or gift giving or whatever your love language is. And that person is able to communicate that with you. I feel like that's what carries attraction through a relationship. Yeah. The tell me what I want to hear part, (laughs) you know, I'm thinking about how there's so much research where you ask people, what are the traits that you want in a partner? And honesty is always one of the top three. And I'm like, you know, I don't think people actually want that much honesty. They want to hear what it is that they want to hear. If you get a haircut that doesn't look good, you don't want your partner to tell you that it looks like shit. You want somebody who's going to tell you what you want to hear in that moment and know when is the right time to lie to you. (laughs) (laughs) When is the right time to soften the blow, Justin, not lie, but I got a haircut (laughs) and they might say, wow, that looks really great. Did you go to someone new? (laughs) (laughs) I like your old person better. If you go back to them, I like that style better, but you look super handsome either way. I would still do you. So (laughs) (laughs) knowing how to soften the blow, I'll still have sex with you, right? Like my new haircut? No, I'll still have sex with you though. So we often hear this idea, people are attracted to similarity. And you brought up this idea that, you know, that we do want people who share similar values to us. Birds of a feather flock together. But at the same time, we also hear that opposites attract. We want somebody who's totally different and who's going to meet that need for surprise and excitement in our life. So much of relationships is born down to these little platitudes (laughs) that are totally contradictory, like birds of a feather flock together and opposites attract. Which one is it? Do we want similarity or do we want differences? Damn it, Justin. We want both. (laughs) (laughs) We do. Opposites do attract. Do you have a large family? I have a small family. How interesting that we can share this idea of what it's like on a holiday. 
are you an introvert? I'm an extrovert. That's great. I can introduce you to how to be social and you can tell me how to calm down, right? You can bring me back down to earth. But at the same time, you need to make sure you have boundaries and you need to make sure that you have not non-starters, I guess, but things that are immediately going to let you know that this may not be the person for you. If you are at complete opposite ends of the spectrum as far as political views are concerned, and that is something that truly means a lot to you, you may not want to get involved with someone who's on the other side of that. It could create a lot of debate, which could lead to more arguments and could lead to eventually the demise of your relationships. So really knowing yourself and understanding what your values, what your core values are as a person and finding someone who shares those core values. Be the bird in your core values and flock with your people in those values. But I would say as far as opposites attract, maybe you're really short and they're really tall and that's hot for you. That's a turn on for you. Or maybe you came from a family that lived in the Pacific Northwest and they came from a family that lived down in Georgia and you really want to explore, um, you know, more of that culture and more of that side. It's, it's more about you and your beliefs and your values as a person, knowing them before you get into a relationship and not sacrificing yourself or compromising your values because someone's hot or because you feel you have to be in a relationship. Yeah, I love everything that you just said. And it's got me thinking about a lot of different things. You know, I'm thinking about a partner I had at one point who was totally different from me. You know, I consider myself to be more of the introverted extrovert type, but that mm. person was super extroverted and we were always out and having a lot of fun and life was super exciting. And, you know, it worked for a little while because there was that sort of excitement factor, but eventually it got exhausting. Like this is too fucking much. Like <laughs> this is not me, you know? So in small doses, I think that opposites can be very enticing and arousing and appealing. But in terms of a long-term proposition, you have to be very comfortable with discomfort because right. at certain points in time, those differences are going to push you apart a little bit. And I'm also thinking about, you know, there are some relationships, celebrity couples who have, for example, totally different political affiliations. You know, I'm thinking about James Carville, who is a hardcore liberal Democrat and his wife, who is a Republican, very ultra conservative. And they're totally polar opposites in terms of their beliefs about seemingly everything, yet they managed to have a marriage, right? Yeah. I bet it takes so much communication and they probably have really great community or, or boundaries when it comes yeah. to the things that they just, the lines they just won't cross, the conversations they just won't have. You know, there's, there's conversations that I won't have with my husband because I know that they lead to the same argument every time. And there's just no point. When I was growing up, I was raised in a very, very religious household. I asked where dinosaurs came from, and I got told that God put the bones in the ground so that humans would ask questions. Okay. So uh, when I met my husband and I told him this, he was like, I'm going to show you a movie. And he showed me this documentary um, from National Geographic about Lucy. Blew my mind. Completely opposite religious spectrum of beliefs, but I was already questioning those beliefs. He never pushed me into thinking that evolution was the only answer or that science was the smart way. I was already there. 
And so to already be on that level with someone and to coax them in in a respectful way and not push them into your beliefs or your values or your ideals, I think that comes again with knowing yourself and understanding where you're at before you get into that relationship. Yeah. I think it's so true that the key to managing opposites in relationships is having boundaries and not pushing each other too hard or not pushing past those boundaries. It's being very respectful of the fact that you are very different in some very important ways. Now, in the attraction process, there seems to be so much emphasis and pressure on having the right opening line. And whether this is in person or online, there's often that dilemma of what do you say? How do you make a good first impression? People really struggle with this. So what's your advice in terms of how to start a conversation with someone you're attracted to? Should you go for the cheesy pickup line or something else? Hey, Justin. Yeah. Are you from Tennessee? Because you're the only 10 I see. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's have sex now. Um. (laughs) See, it works every time. Every time. It's honestly being socially aware. So it's a lot of social cues. It's a lot about reading your audience and knowing who you are as a person, understanding that you aren't going to be attractive to everybody, that your spirit and your energy and your way of speaking, your cadence, the sound of your voice, the way that you smell, all of these things that happen when you are in front of another person they're going to be perceived by people differently because we're all different human beings, right? I can stand up in a room full of people and give a speech and 75% of them are going to be like, hey, she was great. And 20% of them are going to be like, yeah, that was all right. And 5% are going to be like, Jesus, shut up. God, who gave you the microphone? Jeez. So you're never going to please everyone. So if you go into a situation where you're dating and you want to be attractive to other people, know that you're not going to be attractive to everyone. Be yourself, but go into it like a job interview. That's how I look at that first impression that you give people. You want to be the best version of yourself. You don't want to go out and be overly obnoxious or overly cheesy. Don't wear too much cologne or perfume. You want to make sure that you dress nicely, but maybe don't dress down. So you're like, oh, I'm just always this cool and this, you know, laid back. It's fine. Or And you don't need to wear a business suit either, unless that's really who you are. Be yourself, but be the best version of yourself. If your best version of you is giving cheesy pickup lines, I would date you. I think those are hilarious. I love puns. I love cheesy shit. I love it. So if that's what you're into, you're going to find somebody who's into that same thing as you, but it's the law of numbers. You have to put yourself out there to enough people to find that other person who appreciates your humor or who thinks that you smell good or who thinks that your ass looks good in those pants, right? So you have to be able to be willing to put yourself out there and fall and learn from your mistakes in order for you to get that perfect first experience. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, that there are no 100% guarantees when it comes to attraction. And so no matter what your strategy or approach is for 
dealing with opening lines or how you present yourself. It's going to work sometimes. It's not going to work other times. Don't take it so fucking personally, right? This is where we're all so hard on ourselves because we were rejected or somebody that we were interested in wasn't interested in us. Not everyone is going to be interested in you. And we have to be comfortable with that discomfort. That's part of putting yourself out there that you're going to experience some rejection. And if you try online dating, you're going to experience rejection in so much larger amounts than you experience in person because you're going to have so many more interactions online. So we have to feel good about ourselves, be comfortable with the fact that we're going to be rejected sometimes. But I think we also have to be realistic and recognize that maybe if our preferred flirtation strategy is something like using those cheesy pickup lines, right? Because maybe you really like that and you tend to be really attracted to the people who respond really well (laughs) to those types of pickup (laughs) lines. That's a strategy that more often than not probably isn't going to work. You know, think of it as the variable reinforcement schedule. It's like the slot machine. Most of the time you try it, it's not going to work. You're going to flame out. But a small percentage of the time, it will work really well and will help you to find someone who is a really great match for you. So again, it's just being comfortable with the fact that nothing is a guarantee. Rejection is a reality of putting yourself out there on the dating market. And it's not always about you. (laughs) Yeah. I actually love this book by Don Miguel Ruiz. Have you heard of The Four Agreements, Justin? No, I'm not familiar with that one. So The Four Agreements is a phenomenal book, and it's a way of life, honestly. And I feel like the most attractive people are the people who are extremely self-aware and the people who are also aware of their surroundings and able to acclimate in their social climate. And to do that, these four agreements really help. So the first one is be impeccable with your word. So if you're honest and you're an honest person, Honesty is a very, very large, attractive trait. When people rate uh, what traits they want in a partner, honesty usually falls in the top three. The next one is not to take anything fucking personally, which we have talked about. And it's true. Every time you take rejection personally, you become resentful. And resentment is really unattractive to most individuals. Don't make assumptions is the third agreement. When you assume that your pickup line is going to land this person, you're probably going to be disappointed. Don't assume that your approach is the approach that that person wants or needs or even cares about in that moment. And the last one is always do your best. So if you're putting your best self out there, you are being honest, you're not making assumptions, and you're not taking anything personally, you will succeed more often than not in moments of dating or these first time interactions or these first impressions. And that goes for any relationship, whether it be the first time you meet a famous author that you're like super obsessed with who you assign their book to every class. Not that that's anyone here in this podcast right now. Also, the relationship that you have with your students, the relationship you have with your family, or the relationship that you want to have with the really hot person who goes to the Trader Joe's down the street from you. The four agreements is something I teach every time I have the opportunity to do so because I feel like they are core values that individuals should adapt into their personality and they really free you from resentment and dishonesty within yourself and within your relationships. 
I love all of that, especially the part about not making assumptions, because most of us, when we're rejected, you know, we kind of have this tendency to spiral and to think of all of the reasons why we got rejected that say something bad about us instead of leaping to other conclusions, making external attributions, such as maybe that person is already in a relationship or dating someone. Maybe they just ended a relationship and they don't want to start anything right now. Maybe their dog just died and they're here to drown their sorrows in a whiskey sour go away. There could be any number of things. And I realize this can also be complicated by the fact that if you have mental health struggles, depression, anxiety, OCD, sometimes those lead us to catastrophize even more Mm -hmm. when we experience rejection and other things like this. So part of it is just sort of learning to recognize those patterns of behavior and trying to avoid going down that spiral every single time rejection or something else that's painful happens to us. I feel like it's really important to remind people that you are not your best self and therefore are not going to be the best partner when you have not learned about your own mental health issues and your own physical and mental limitations. Your relationship with yourself should come first. And until you reach not necessarily self-actualization on the Maslow hierarchy of needs, but until you reach a place where you're capable of maintaining a a mental status that doesn't rely on the acceptance of a stranger, you probably shouldn't be getting into relationships at that point. You need to work on you before you can even become attractive to another person. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, in terms of what it is that attracts us to other people. We've talked about some of these traits, you know, honesty often coming in near the top of the list, but not necessarily really honesty, more so (laughs) tell me what I want to hear when I want to hear it. We also want partners who are kind to us. There's a lot of research showing that, yeah, that makes sense because we tend to respond positively to people who make us feel good about ourselves. We want somebody with a good sense of humor, somebody who can make us laugh. That can be a really attractive trait and characteristic. There's also some research finding that women who think their partners are funnier have more orgasms. I don't necessarily know what that's about, but- I you love know. that statistic. <laughs> I say that statistic. I'm like, if you can make me laugh, apparently you can make me come. So yeah. make me laugh, clown. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> So we know a lot about what people say they want. And, you know, people say, I want somebody who's going to treat me nice and make me feel good. But a lot of people across genders, across sexual orientations, seem to be drawn to people who are poor relationship matches. Sometimes we're drawn to people with dark personality traits. And one of the most common things I hear in terms of this particular area is you'll have a lot of heterosexual women who say, you know, I really want to settle down with a nice guy, but I keep going for the quote unquote bad boys, right? (laughs) So sometimes we're just attracted to people who don't make good, reliable, long-term partners. So why is that? And how do you break this pattern if you're somebody who keeps choosing the wrong type of partner over and over? So a lot of research actually has been done on this exact topic, and attachment styles are a huge predictor of who we're going to be attracted to 
as adults. There's a lot of genetic components as well and learned behaviors that happen in attraction and in mate selection. If you lived in a household that was marred by trauma, you know, if you're a woman, let's say, and the, and your mother was constantly in abusive relationships or went back to an abuser over and over again, we learn these patterns and these behaviors at an age when we actually don't have any other choice. Usually we learn our attachment styles when we're about three years old, and we don't really have any cognizant awareness of learning these attachment styles. The great news is that you can actually undo negative attachment styles like anxious avoidant. You can actually become more secure attached simply by doing the work on yourself. A lot of people who go for the wrong person are doing so because that's a learned behavior. Negative reinforcement plays a huge role in that. And we fall into these patterns of abuse and these cycles of abuse uh, that feel like they are passionate and that feel like they should be a good relationship. It's what we've seen. It's what we know from growing up. But in actuality, it's just doing a whole lot more damage to us than it should be. The best way to break that cycle is to learn what your attachment style is, perhaps looking at the trauma that you've experienced as a child or looking back at some examples of people that you had in relationships. Who do you emulate your relationships after? And then doing the work, getting into therapy if you're able to, uh, reading books about attachment style and who you're drawn to and maybe how to undo some of this trauma that happens to us as children that we're not even aware of at that point and really working on yourself because it isn't the partners that we choose. It's not their responsibility to become something different. We need to seek out the healthy, the stable, the safe, the kind, the funny. Um, and when we're seeking out these abusive traits in people, that's on us. We have to fix that. We have to recognize that within ourselves and make changes in our own minds and our own personalities so that our future relationships are stable and are healthy. And this has got me thinking about a conversation I previously had on the podcast with Gary Lewandowski about how you can't change someone else. And a lot of us are attracted to the bad boy or somebody else who has this dark streak or whatever to them. And we think that, you know, if we get into a relationship with them, we can change them, mold them into who we want them to be. We can fix them. And you can't fix somebody else. You can't force change on another person. You can change yourself. You can change mm -hmm. your relationship agreement, but you can't change or impose change on someone else. They have to be willing to want to change. So I think that's a really important thing to recognize with attraction is, you know, sometimes the people you might be physically or sexually attracted to are not the people that you're romantically attracted to. And you can't always turn those hot, passionate sexual partners into the long-term relationship partner. Those might be people who fall into two camps. That's not to say that you have to resign yourself to a sexless marriage or passionless marriage with <laughs> a nice person, right? You can still have hot, passionate, exciting sex. Yeah. Nice people have hot sex all the time. <laughs> yeah. And one convenient 
easy way to sort of add that like little element of danger or whatever it is that you're drawn to is through role play or something else that you incorporate into your sexual routine with your partner. So I think if there's a mismatch between who you're sexually attracted to and who you're romantically attracted to, it's how do you pull those elements of sexual attraction and put them into that romantic context? And that's where getting creative and introducing novelty, I think, can be really helpful for accomplishing that. And I think it's also important to recognize that sometimes the people that we're attracted to the most are just bad people <laughs> for a couple of reasons. One is that, and I will argue this, I will die on this hill, that more attractive people tend to be more narcissistic. You know, they, mm. they put more effort into their appearance. And that's not to say that all pretty people are narcissistic inherently, just that the base rate for narcissism is different in that extraordinarily good-looking population. And so if you're drawn so much and you're making all of your choices based on looks, then you're selecting for a higher percentage of people who are going to be narcissists and who are going to fall into that camp that might make them not good relationship partners. And I think that's just an important lesson in why looks shouldn't be everything. And if you're only using looks as your screening tool, then you might actually be screening out a lot of really good people in favor of having a lot more narcissists in the mix. Not only that, we have this bias towards pretty people where we think pretty people are nicer than they are, smarter than they are, uh, and they're better, at their, and better <laughs> at their job than they are. And they're not. They're just people who happen to have very symmetrical faces <laughs> or like a really good hairstylist or a lot of money. And that is not necessarily indicative of a good partner. And you're right. A lot of times individuals who grow up and know that they're pretty and know that they are attractive, they're fed all of this information by social media and by these social constructs that we have that say pretty people just get more. We reward pretty people and thin people more than we reward any other kinds of people in this society. And so we create this, this group of narcissistic, beautiful people to just prey upon the fives and the sixes <laughs> who are just out here to have a relationship. And we've got these nines going, I'm just going to dominate all of you real quick. Like, let's go. I'm just going to tear all of you apart. And they're suffering inside themselves as well. Welcome to the Why Pretty People Are Terrible podcast. So, <laughs> I'll die on this hill with you. <laughs> well, thank you. Happy to have the company. So we've been talking about a lot of factors that facilitate attraction, but what about the attraction repellents, if you will? What are the kinds of things that tend to shut down attraction because they're deal breakers? It can be a lot of, of various factors. And again, attraction is so subjective. But I would say first and foremost, anyone who is aggressive in any sort of way, the overly aggressive person, the person who doesn't take no for an answer, the person who cannot read social cues and maybe is a bit more insistent uh, than, than another person might be. This is going to sound a little... I'm I'm our, I'm going to say I'm sorry ahead of time. People who smell bad repel other people. Like you really need to make sure you have good hygiene. Again, if you are going out to attract any sort of partner, whether it be romantic partner, a friend for the night, uh, a one night stand, treat it like a job interview. 
You would not go into a job interview without having showered in the last three days, without deodorant, without wearing new clothes that you didn't find in the dirty hamper. And you're not going to walk into the job interview and say, hey, give me this job. You don't walk up to somebody and go, hey, let's go fuck. Like, that's not attractive. And you want to make sure that you present yourself in a way that's memorable. So shaking their hand buying them a drink, asking how their day was, complimenting them on something genuine, making sure that you are being honest and genuine. Those are attractive qualities. People who come off as immediate liars or immediately aggressive, those are red flags to a lot of people. Yeah. And I'm thinking about a recent study that came out that identified the seven biggest relationship deal breakers these are things that would come up in the attraction process. And you mentioned a few of them. One of them is that aggressiveness, that hostility, you know, people who are unfriendly or grumpy don't make for very attractive (laughs) prospects, right? right? Also the personal care part, the being filthy, dirty, smelly, these sorts of things. Yeah. That plays a role in your attractiveness. So hygiene is important. And, you know, I know people who have struggled with, you know, personal hygiene issues. One of them being like, maybe they have really bad breath or something, but oftentimes they don't know it, right? Because you can't always smell yourself. And they've been very grateful for friends or others who have pointed it out to them that, hey, this is an issue that you might not realize is holding you back from finding a relationship or a sexual partner or something. And it's something that's within their control to address. Right. And I know it sounds mean, like there's no way to nicely tell someone that they don't smell good or anything like that. But sometimes coming from a loved person, like that can be an important, useful piece of information that can really help them in navigating their life if it's something that they're not personally aware of. Yeah. And then, you know, in terms of other big deal breakers, being very arrogant, being very clingy can be another one, especially, you know, early on. Oh my God, I didn't even think about that one. Oh, that's a huge one. Oh my, the clingy, the text me, text me, text me, call me, call me, call me. Why haven't you called me? You must hate me. Again, making assumptions, right? We're making these assumptions. This person has all the time in the world just for us. And if they don't text us back, it's because they hate us. Yep. You know, it's making me think of a time, this was a long time ago, I went on a first date with someone. And by the time I got home, there was an email saying, do you believe in love at first sight? Because I do, and I'm falling in love with you. And I'm like, red flag, red flag, run away. So (laughs) it's a red flag parade. (laughs) Yeah. Now for some people, like if you believe in love at first sight, that might be like super romantic. And if you felt like a chemistry or connection with that other person and you want to run with it, great. You know, sometimes people do end up happily ever after that way. But for a lot of people like me, that is too much too soon. And we do see this in the research that saying I love you on the first date is a pretty big deal breaker for a lot of people. But at the same time, saying you want to have sex on the first date is a big deal breaker to a lot of other people as well. So it's something where, you know, again, you're not going to be everyone's taste because everyone likes to move at different speeds. Exactly. It's a really big deal to make sure, again, that you have these social cues that you're able to to navigate. And if you feel like this person maybe isn't into texting as much as you, you can actually dial back sort of your normal requirement. If, if you are someone who loves words of affirmation um, and you really want to be told hello every day, 
but they already tell you, you know, I'm not really a texter, then you can dial back your expectations and set those a a little bit lower so that you're kind of able to meet the other person where they're at. Set boundaries early. (laughs) No, (laughs) and always there is. And always early and often. So there is so much that we could talk about, Ashley. And I had a million other questions I wanted to get to, but let me just ask you one more because this is one that often comes up. And it's the question of in the attraction and dating process, should you play hard to get? You know, a lot of people do this in the early stages of dating and courtship. And basically, they don't want to seem too over eager and available. So they pull back a little bit. For example, they won't respond to a message right away. They're going to wait a few minutes or a few hours, maybe even a few days before they respond. Basically, they're trying to create this illusion of scarcity and they're going to seem hopefully more desirable and the other person's going to put more effort right into pursuing you. Now, at the same time, you know, this is something a lot of people do thinking it's going to make them more desirable because they don't want to seem too overeager. They don't want to seem too clingy because we know that can be a deal breaker. But then on the (laughs) other hand, you hear a lot of people say, oh, if they play hard to get, that's such a turnoff because it communicates or signals that they're not interested. So what are your thoughts on this? How do you navigate this very fraught topic of playing hard to get? I am a huge proponent for honesty. You used a word illusion. To me, the word illusion implies that you are withholding information intentionally that you know something that they don't know and and you're manipulating a situation. I always try to be impeccable with my word. And if I feel like someone um, sends me a message, I'm going to reply right away because that's who I am as a person. I don't want to make myself look any different than I am because eventually the real you is going to come out. The real version of yourself, the not job interview person, is going to make themselves known. The tightrope we have to walk is the time frame with which you undo those layers of who you really are. You don't necessarily want to get into childhood trauma on date one. That's a layer that probably needs to be saved for maybe down the road. But you can mention that you are a very open, communicative person. You really like chatting with people all day. You and your friends text regularly. And hopefully by revealing this piece of information about yourself, the person you're dating can say, oh, that's funny. I actually don't ever text anybody. And then you can internalize that and take that for what it's worth and make your expectations lesser of that person's response time to your text messages. And maybe they can take that as, if I text this person or call this person, I know they're going to respond right away. Really understanding where the other person is coming from. I don't think playing hard to get is a good idea. I think that it is manipulative and a little trashy, (laughs) for lack of a better term. I don't like the three-day rule that they had in Swingers where you have to wait three days to call. What is this? What is this arbitrary three days? What the fuck is that? I don't even like it. Three days is so long. I would die. Especially in the world of online dating. Think of all the potential dates, interactions, other things that you would miss out on in that time. They have like a hundred swipes that they've already gone through. Time is of the essence, people. Message back. And I think online dating has changed the rules there when it comes to playing hard to get. And there is some research to bear this out that the longer you wait to reply to someone, the lower the odds of you receiving a reply become. 
Right. And the less engaged you are. I feel like if you're not engaged in the conversation, they're going to forget about you, especially because they have such a large pool to pick from. Oftentimes. <laughs> I mean, certainly everybody's situation online is different. Some people have more matches and opportunities than others. But yes, if you want to play just a teeny tiny bit hard to get and wait a couple minutes or whatever between replies, like that's fine. Or wait until you've finished your work. Like you don't have to drop everything and respond. Right. I certainly don't do that at all in my everyday life. I just have too fucking much going on. <laughs> How many notifications are on your phone right now? <laughs> too many. I will respond to you when I get a break because it's just one too many things for me to handle right now. So, you know, that's one thing in terms of like managing work-life balance. And if you want to wait a little bit, that's fine. Don't wait too long because you run that risk of the other person just not being interested. And again, it goes back to, we usually want people who make us feel good and we're going to feel good if somebody responds to us in a timely fashion. You always have to be able to understand, you know, where that person's coming from. You know, if, if you respond when you have time and you make them a priority when you are able to do so without feeling any sort of pressure. If, if you're a doctor, you're not having, you don't have your phone with you or, or you're not able to, to have a normal schedule where you can see people, but making them feel like a priority. I think when we play hard to get, the unfortunate thing that happens is we make people sort of feel like we have better things to do than answer you. And I feel like that's manipulative and mean. So I feel like that's not a good game to play. <laughs> I agree. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Ashley. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Absolutely. It was an absolute pleasure being here. Uh, I, I have a podcast. It's called What's Your Position? We're on Instagram at What's Your Position Podcast. You can also email us at What's Your Position Podcast at Gmail. And we have a phone number. It's 513-6969-SEX. Not even kidding. They can call us, they can leave us messages, they can text us, ask any questions that they'd like. We will answer them live on the air. And we are available at every single podcast outlet that you can get your hands on. Spotify, Apple, Pandora, Podbean, all the good ones. We're there. Love it. So if you want Ashley to weigh in on whether you have a good pickup line, call and leave her a <laughs> oh voicemail. Oh my God. I'll do an entire <laughs> episode on pickup lines if I get more people to call. <laughs> I would love it. So thank you for your time. Also, thank you to my listeners to keep up with new episodes of this podcast. Visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 